I'd like to introduce the sermon this afternoon with a little story about a college professor who was kind of making fun of the Bible in front of his class. He said, you know, the Bible is nothing but a bunch of myths and unbelievable stories about burning bushes and whales swallowing people and dead people coming out of graves. And he said, you know, does anyone actually believe that Jonah was swallowed by a whale? And a girl raised her hand. The professor looked at it and said, you actually believe that a whale swallowed Jonah? And he stayed there for three days, was spit up alive on the beach? She said, yes. He said, how do you know? How would you prove that? She said, when I get to heaven, I'd ask Noah, or ask Jonah. He said, what if, no, what if Jonah didn't go to heaven? What if he went to hell? She said, then you can ask him. <laughs> you know, that's funny, but it's also sad and sobering. Because a number of young people today, many young people today, face that type of situation in a classroom today, in colleges and universities, where teachers make fun of students that actually have beliefs in the Bible and believe in God. Some students have actually been flunked for writing papers talking about the Bible. Now, for those of you that graduated from college years ago or didn't go to college, this is kind of hard to believe. But these things are actually happening today. We live in an age of doubt, an age of skepticism, and a time of growing antagonism to anything that relates to the Christian religion, a belief in God, a belief in the Bible, a belief in Jesus Christ. You know, there are atheists and secular intellectuals today that ridicule ideas about God. If you believe in God, you might be told you've got a small brain. You've got a limited intellect. There's something wrong with you if you actually believe that stuff in that book. <clears throat> Academic scholars, college teachers... Even theologians question the Bible. Well, how do we really know? Or, you know, we know this and we know that, and that doesn't agree with the Bible, so therefore it's all ridiculous. Even the media today, if you watch some of the presentations, they, they plant questions. They plant doubts in people's minds. And it's not surprising that many people have doubts and questions in their mind partly as a, as a result of this constant stream of negative comments about God and about the Bible. I've mentioned this before, that studies have shown that many young people who believe in God, who go to college, lose their faith in college because of what they hear in classrooms. Again, for some of you, that sounds like well, I... That can't be true in America, but it is. And I see people shaking their heads. And I've talked to some young people that are in college and universities today. And they say that's exactly the way it is. Many adults today lack confidence and faith in God and in the Scriptures because of this underlying theme that they hear in society. 
and also partly because they never hear the other side of the coin. They never hear the other side of the story, as Paul Harvey used to say, the rest of the story. Here it is. Many people today put down God and put down the Bible, but many people don't hear, as I said, the other side of the story, the reasons for believing in God and for believing in the Scriptures. I'd like to ask you a couple of questions as we begin this afternoon. How real is the God of the Bible to you? How real is the God of the Bible to you? How real is the Jesus Christ of Scripture to you? Or is he just a warm feeling in your heart? Can you or do you trust God? God says things in the Bible. Do you believe it? Are you foolish for believing it? Can you put your faith in the things that Jesus said in the Scriptures? Would you actually die for those things? Do you really believe what you read? Can you confidently give an answer for the hope that lies within you? Why do you believe what you do? Could you confidently, like this girl in the story, <laughs> when she's ridiculed for believing that Jonah was swallowed by a whale, and she said, yes, I do. Could you answer that way, or would you put your tail between your legs and say, well, I'm not really sure, I really don't know. Or would you have an answer? You know, Peter talks about that, First Peter 3.15, to be ready to give an answer for the hope that lies within you, a defense for what it is that you believe. Paul gave a defense for what he believed. And we should be able to do those things too. <clears throat> In the sermon today, I would like to discuss the subject <clears throat> of how the God of the Bible and how the Jesus Christ of Scriptures can become more real to you. I want to look at some ways that you can use methods that you can use to strengthen your faith and to trust God more fully. There are things that we can do. So I want to go over some of those things. And I've entitled the sermon, Building Stronger Faith. Building Stronger Faith. How do you do it? What do we do? And I want to do this in three parts. One, <clears throat> I want to talk about how you build faith some of the biblical instructions, and we'll look at some of the historical evidence for God and how he has worked in history, and then talk about how does this all relate to you. Because it's more than just an intellectual exercise. It becomes very personal. But if we ask the question here at the beginning, how do you build faith? What do you do? What can we do? How can God become more real to you and to your children? How do you make God real to your children today? Because they're going to be hearing things in school. And they will see other kids laughed at for what they believe. How can you strengthen them and prepare them for what's coming? What instructions do we find in the Bible? And this is really kind of a perennial question. It's not just something that's... Currently, something we talk about today. 
When I was in graduate school in Mississippi at the University Medical Center there, there was a number of Christian groups that had uh, uh, student unions on campus. And they had free lunches, usually one day a week. And it was not uh, uh, out of the ordinary for us to go to those lunches, not wanting to be part of the Christian group there, but because there was a free lunch there. And I was invited to go with a couple of other guys. But uh, one student was asked to stand up and kind of give a testimony, why you believe in God or something like that. I wasn't asked at that time, but the fellow who asked me to go was asked to talk. So he stood up, and it was interesting. He said, you know, God is real to my mom and dad, but he's really not that real to me. Which I thought was interesting. He was a good Baptist kid. He was a nice fellow. It was interesting, his comment. He said, God was not really real to me, but I sensed that he was real to my parents. I wonder why. I think we'll talk about that today. Many people go to church today, and they believe in God, they believe in Jesus. But if you ask them specific questions, do you really believe this, that Jesus said, well, let, let, let me think about that. Well, there's another view on that. It really doesn't mean that. It may mean something else. What instructions do we find in the Bible for building faith? Let's notice something. Turn to uh, Luke 17. Jesus had made this comment in Luke 18, verse 8. We'll be touching on this a little bit from time to time. Jesus said, when the Son of Man returns, will he find faith on this earth? You know, when you look around at what's happening in our society today, where college and university professors make fun of the Bible, where teachers in school kind of make fun of the Bible, it's not surprising that many people lack faith today, especially when they don't hear the other side of the story that we're going to be talking about today. But what can we do to build faith? Notice in Luke 17, verse 5. It says, The apostles said to the Lord, Increase our faith. If you look this up in other translations, it can also be stated, Give us more faith. In other words, do something so that we can have more faith. But, you know, Jesus makes this statement and then goes on, talks about something else. He doesn't really answer the question at that point in time. But if you can jot in your notes, Matthew 7, verses 7 to 8, it says, if you lack something, you can ask, and then seek, and then knock. So there's more than just asking for faith or for anything else. It involves seeking, looking for something, and knocking. I think I mentioned this before, that when I came into the church, reading about Solomon, how he asked for wisdom, And God gave him wisdom, made him wise. So I thought I'd pray for wisdom. And I prayed and prayed and woke up the next morning and didn't feel any wiser than I was the the day before. And it wasn't for several weeks or maybe several months until I started reading through Proverbs. In Proverbs chapter 2, it talks about if you lack wisdom, then you cry out for it. You seek for it. 
You store up wisdom. You got to find it someplace and then store it up. It says if you walk with wise people, you'll become wise. I began to realize there's something else I need to do <laughs> besides just ask. See, it involves seeking and looking and learning and growing. We're told in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, first 12 verses, talks about the gifts of the Spirit. And one of those gifts is faith. And I think you can use the same analogy. You can ask for the gift of faith. God may give you something supernaturally, but if you follow the other instructions about asking for wisdom, you know, <laughs> the rest of the Bible says you've got to seek for it. You've got to look for it. You've got to collect it. You know, Solomon collected a bunch of Proverbs and put them in a book so that younger people and older people that read the book can grow in wisdom by studying what's there. So we can ask for wisdom, but there's also other things we need to do, seeking for it, knocking for it, looking for it, collecting things. Let's go to another scripture in Romans chapter 10, verse 17. I'm trying to paint a big picture here at the beginning. <clears throat> Romans chapter 10 and verse 17. <clears throat> We're breaking into the thought here, but um, it says, So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. So faith comes from hearing, hearing the teachings of God, hearing the teachings of Jesus Christ that come from the Word of God. Again, I would encourage you to look this up in a couple of different translations. One translation mentioned that... Uh, so then faith comes by hearing the message, and the message comes from the lips of Christ. It comes from the Scriptures. So if we're reading the Bible, reading what God says, and reading some of the information that God records in the Bible, and reviewing that, becoming familiar with that, it should enhance our faith, as we will see. You know, what is faith? I think some people think, well, I just pray and these thoughts come into my mind and, you know, I, I have so much more faith. But notice in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Again, I'm not discouraging anyone for asking for faith. But let's look at the big picture. Hebrews 11, verse 1, it says, Faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen or things that you don't see yet. You know, this podium has substance. It's real. And evidence is factual information. It's not just feelings. It's not just opinions. But it's factual information. Again, you look this up in several different translations. Faith is the substance or the assurance or the confidence of things hoped for. You know, eternal life, forgiveness of sins, that God will intervene in your life. Assurance, how do you know that he will? And the evidence or the proof or the conviction of things not yet seen. How do you know prophecies are going to be fulfilled? You look back in history and you see what other prophecies have been fulfilled. 
And then you can be confident that the prophecies that have not yet been fulfilled will be fulfilled because God doesn't change. He doesn't change. What he says, he will bring about. So knowing what faith is, it's the substance, the assurance of things hoped for, and the evidence. And we're going to look at some evidence today of things not seen. 1 Thessalonians 5.21, it fits with uh, the scripture that we just read. 1 Thessalonians 5.21. Paul is concluding the letter to the church at Thessalonica. In verse 19, he says, don't quench the spirit, don't despise prophecies. Then he says, test all things and hold fast what is good. Word means examine everything carefully. Don't buy into opinions and ideas, but test it, evaluate it, consider the pros and cons, and don't internalize it until you can prove that it really is true, that it's truth, not opinions. Because once you've proven what the truth is, then you can be confident of that. Somebody can laugh at it, but you can tell them you're laughing at the truth. You can be confident once you've nailed down what the truth is. Mr. Armstrong used to say, you need to know that you know that you know that you know that you know what the truth is. And you can do that when you nail it down. Otherwise, you don't know. Somebody can make a big statement. If you've never proven something for yourself, then you get blown away. I think one of the reasons a number of people are no longer with the Church of God that sat here and listened in congregations for 10, 15, 20, 30 years. They, they never proved, they never nailed down what was really true. But they enjoyed the socials. It was great going to the feast, new place every year, all these exciting places. But, you know, if you've not nailed down the truth, you don't know what the truth is, somebody comes along and says, God is leading us off in a different direction. Oh, I better go in that direction because God is leading people there. No, we need to recognize what the truth is and what is not the truth. What's a fairy tale? We need to be able to understand it and, and, and notice those things, prove those things. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 5. It says, but also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith. Add to your faith. Virtue, and to virtue, knowledge, and to knowledge, self-control, and uh, self-control, perseverance, and so on. But let's just look at the first part of this. He says, add to your faith, or give all diligence to add to your faith. This word diligence in the Greek means carefulness. Now use carefulness. Be eager to add to your faith. Be earnest to add to your faith. Make every effort to add to your faith. That's what the word means. Be diligent. Be alert. Make every effort to add to your faith virtue. The Greek word here means strength, courage, resolution, determination, confidence, now, how do you add these things? You just pull it out of the air? No, if you prove things, you can be confident of what the truth is. If you know what the Bible actually says, 
You've read it. You write it down. You know where it says it. You can be confident in those things. If you don't know what the Bible says, and you don't know where you can find it, well, I think I heard it somewhere. (laughs) That doesn't add confidence to your faith. But if you nail it down, you can be confident. And if you're diligent in this, you can be courageous. I gave a sermon one time in Big Sandy, and somebody told me, if you give that, you're going to get fired. I said, I know. But what are you going to do then? I said, I'm going to trust God. (laughs) See, God says he will fight our battles. We'll see this in just a little bit. You know, he also says, I'll bless those that bless you and curse those that curse you. So if somebody fires you for your job, you can pray that God will be merciful for them (laughs) and merciful with with them. But see, you can do that if you know what the truth is. And you know what the promises are that God gives. But he says, add to your faith virtue, courage, confidence. Then he says, add to that knowledge. The word here is gnosis. It means to know, to know the facts, to know basic information, uh, to have discernment. He's not speaking the truth. How do you know? Because the Bible says this. You can add confidence if you have knowledge. If you know what the truth is, it's going to give you confidence. And then God can give you more faith because you've done your part. There's a part that we have to play in all of this. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul uses an analogy here. And he's talking about your Christian life and your Christian faith. Some people I've talked to say, how do you know God exists? Well, I just know. I made up my mind I was going to believe. Regardless of the facts, it's all internal. We need to do more than just make up our minds. We need to build solidly. Paul is talking about here, let's start in... um, Start in verse 10. It says, According to the grace of God which was given to me, a wise master builder, I've laid the foundation, and another builds on it. He was talking about what uh, Apollos was doing, working with him. It says, I have laid the foundation, another builds upon it. But let each one or let everyone take heed, be careful how he builds on that foundation. For no other foundation can anyone lay which is laid which is Jesus Christ. You can't build a solid structure if you're not building on the teachings of Jesus Christ. Well, Thomas Aquinas said this, and St. Jerome said this. The Catholic Church basically says our doctrines are based on the Bible and tradition. The tradition of who? What tradition of philosophers? and people who theorized about various things. And people get in trouble when you accept theories that are not based on the Bible, that don't agree with the Bible. You know, many people think they go to heaven, but the Bible says, nope, you don't. Nobody's going to heaven yet. Christ is coming back from heaven. And he's going to reign on this earth. We're not going to sit on clouds, you know, forever and ever and ever and float around up there and play harps and guitars and whatever else that people may want to play. 
But Paul is saying here, build carefully, verse 12. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, it's going to last. But if you build with wood and hay and stubble and straw, it's not going to last. Why? Verse 13. Each one's work will become clear. It will become clear what you built with. For the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire. And fire will test each one's work to see what it's made out of. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he's going to receive a reward. However, if anyone's work is burned, he will suffer the loss. Okay, we've got to build carefully. What is it that you believe? Why do you believe it? Do you know why you believe it? And if you nail these things down, you can endure the trials and tests with God's help. But we've got to do these things, brother. And these are things we need to do. We've got to build carefully. But notice a couple of warnings in the Scripture. Let's go back to Deuteronomy 32. And again, we'll see these warnings and also the promises run through the Scriptures. Because God doesn't change. Deuteronomy 32 is a song of Moses. Uh, it's kind of a sad song when you read it through because he's rehearsing kind of the tragic history of the nation of Israel. He said, God called you, God blessed you, and then you forgot, and you turned away, and then there were consequences. Notice in verse 15 of chapter 32, But Jeshurun, Jeshurun this is a poetic name for Israel, grew fat and kicked. He grew fat, or you grew fat, and you grew uh, thick. You're obese. Then he, that is Jerusalem, or Jeshurun, or Israel, then he forsook God who made him. In other words, the Israelites turned away from God after they were blessed and scornfully esteemed the rock of his salvation. They provoked him, that is God, to jealousy with foreign gods, with abominations they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons, not to God, to gods they did not know, to new gods, new arrivals, that your fathers did not fear. Now notice in verse 18, of the rock who begat them, you were, are unmindful. You might jot in your notes here or in your margin. Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians 10.4 that the rock that followed them was Christ. The rock that followed the Israelites that led them out of Egypt was Jesus Christ. As it mentions here, the rock who begat them, you are unmindful. You have forgotten the God who fathered you. You've literally turned away from God. And it says there will be consequences for that. In Hosea chapter 8, Again, just to show that this same theme runs through the Scriptures. Hosea chapter 8, <clears throat> verse 11, 12, 13, and 14. It says, Because Ephraim has made many altars for sin, they have become for him altars for sinning. I have written for him the great things of my law. I gave the Israelites my inspired laws. And it says they were considered a strange thing. We have been given the laws of God about the Sabbath, about the holy days, about the purpose of human life. 
And once you start keeping the Sabbath, once you start keeping the holy days, people begin to think, what planet did you come from? Don't you realize all those things were done away with? We're under grace. We don't have to do any of those old things anymore. The ancient Israelites forgot, and so have we today. I'm speaking nationally. Verse 14, Israel has forgotten his maker and has built temples. Judah has also multiplied fortified cities, but I will send fire upon his cities and devour his palaces. There will be consequences for turning away from God, losing faith in God. Let's look at one or two New Testament scriptures quickly in Romans chapter 1. And Paul is talking to the Romans of his day, the people that lived in Rome. We are not the only people over the last 10 or 15 or 20 years that have referred to America as the modern Romans, a nation that is going the way of Rome. And when you read what Paul said about the Romans or the people in Rome, what they were having to deal with, it certainly fits today. Verse 18 of chapter 1. So for the wrath of God is revealed from the heavens against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. You know, Psalm 119, verse 172, defines righteousness as all the commandments of God. So what we're being told here is God is upset with the unrighteousness, the turning away from his laws by people. And he's also un- upset with those who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. There's no God. The Bible doesn't mean what it says. It's just a bunch of stories. You're stupid for believing in that stuff. They're suppressing truth. They're not telling people what the God of the Bible was really like, what he has done in history, what he's going to do. There's no wonder people have doubts today because they don't get the other side of the story. Verse 21, because they, although they knew God, they knew there was a God somewhere, they did not glorify him as God, but were unthankful and became unfruitful in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. Now he's talking to Romans that were influenced by Greek philosophy. And these same philosophies have influenced many people today in colleges and universities and theological schools. Says they changed the glory of God into uh, uh, images of birds and animals. You, know, you go through the British Museum, you go through the um, <clears throat> the Louvre in Paris, you go through the uh, museum in Germany there, and you see these Egyptian gods at a body of a man and a head of a a wolf or the head of a bird. Uh, these are the strange gods that people have made and then worshipped, and then sacrificed their children to. They're hunks of wood, hunks of stone. But God says when they turned away from the true God, their hearts were darkened. Verse 25, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. We're going to be talking about some of the truths of God a little bit later. And people are told today, oh, that didn't happen. That's not real. That's just a story that somebody made up. Verse 28, And it certainly applies for people today, even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge. You write a paper in college about God, you may get flunked. 
teacher may not read it. Because they don't want people talking about those things today. Even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind, a perverted mind, a misguided mind to do those things which are not fitting. One other warning in uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2. See, the Bible talks a lot about faith, but it also talks about people who try and undermine faith, the faith of individuals, the faith of people, the faith of nations. 2 Timothy chapter 2, beginning in verse 15, says, Be diligent. Here's this word again. Be diligent to present yourselves approved unto God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing, accurately explaining, correctly teaching the word of God. But shun or avoid profane and idle babblings, because they'll only increase to more ungodliness. Uh, and then he talks about certain individuals. It's not wrong to mention certain names from time to time. They claim to be self-appointed apostles and claim to be self-appointed prophets and claim to be self-appointed ministers of God. Because Paul mentions in 2 Corinthians 11, these people are actually ministers of Satan that Satan can use even though they may be very sincere. But we've got to be able to recognize. Verse 18, it says, These individuals have strayed concerning the truth. They've erred. They've gone off in a wrong direction, saying the resurrection is already past, and they overthrow the faith of some. They destroy the faith of some. They undermine the faith of some. They upset the faith of some. These statements that God isn't real, the Bible's a bunch of silly stories. And for somebody that's not grounded, it can blow them away. You see, these are some of the warnings that we find there. I would encourage you to go back and read the whole chapter, Deuteronomy chapter 4, because it mentions there four or five times, take heed. Remember what you saw. You saw God part the waters of the Red Sea. Remember that? You saw God deliver you. Remember that? You know, what is it in the Scriptures we need to make sure we don't forget if we're going to be building faith? As we mentioned in Romans 10, verse 17, that faith comes by hearing, and that hearing then comes from the Word of God. What is it that we make, want to make sure that we remember and never forget? You know, the Bible has about uh, 17, 18, 19, depending on you count them, books of history. You might think, what a boring <laughs> collection of books. That's all dead history. No. I came across an interesting quote in teaching the OTS class. One source mentioned that a, bi a biblical faith is a historical faith. A biblical faith is a historical faith. In other words, faith, excuse me, history is important to a biblical faith. It's a record of God's intervention in history. It's a record of the promises that God made and then fulfilled, and it's all in the book. And you can find it confirmed from other sources. But when you throw away the history... 
you're throwing away some of the proof that God exists and that he has intervened and guided the course of history. And if we're not taught those things, it's interesting that many colleges and universities are doing away with teaching American history and doing away with teaching the history of Western civilization. And God can't be talked about in those classes because the Christian religion has played a powerful role in the establishment of the United States and in Western civilization. But when we do away with those things, a knowledge of who we are, you know, Prince Charles conducted a, a seminar one summer when I was in England, and he got historians together. And he says, we need to talk about this subject. Because if our people don't know our history, they don't know who they are. You tell people today that America and Britain are Israelites. They say, who? <laughs> what? Israel's over in the Middle East. How could Americans be Israelites? They've never been taught. And when you're at a feast in Wales, <clears throat> we were meeting in a hotel and they had other people there in the hotel, and uh, <clears throat> we came out of our meeting, and some of the people actually ran into a, a, a tour guide who had given them a, a tour of a castle in Wales just the day before. And they recognized each other, and this fellow said, what are you people doing here? And they said, we're keeping the biblical holy days. He said, are you guys Jews or what? <laughs> I guess they'd had a good relationship with this guy. And they said, no, uh, it's, it's their biblical holy days. Jesus kept them. Would you like to talk to our pastor? And I was just walking out the door. <laughs> so they grabbed me and said, this person wants to talk to you. Was, <laughs> I said, can I help you? And he said, uh, are you guys Jews keeping the holy days? I said, no, Jesus kept these days. Uh, the early church kept these days. He said, well, that's really interesting. He said, I'd like to learn more about that. I said, I'm going to be over here in about two weeks uh, taking care of some business. Would you like me to come talk to your group? He said, yeah. So two weeks later, I was giving a talk to a retired businessman's group. And I started out by saying that, uh, I said, I don't want to spoil your lunch, but you guys are Israelites. <laughs> and I saw this one guy who was a math teacher, and he just went, oh, no. <laughs> So I told him, I said, you guys are Israelites. I said, the Bible gives reasons why you've been blessed. And the Bible also has a number of reasons why you're going to lose your blessings. I see this guy, oh, no. <laughs> so I, I said a number of things. And then I sat down. And at the end of the meeting, the older gentleman who was chairing the, the meeting, he's about 75 years old. He said, this man knows what he's talking about. And this math guy went, boing. <laughs> He said, my mother told me these things years ago. But we've tended to forget these things. See, the scriptures we read in Deuteronomy about Israelites forgetting God and turning away from God. And there will be consequences because they're not being taught today. They don't know. Their heritage has been buried and been thrown away. But if you read through Deuteronomy, it talks about remember, 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 remember. 
and we've forgotten. But those scriptures are there. Turn to Deuteronomy 4, verse 23, quickly. Deuteronomy 4, verse 23. Just to notice one of the scriptures. See, these are things that were inspired in the Bible. You know, Jesus Christ, as the God of the Old Testament, spoke these things. And he doesn't change. You find them written in Deuteronomy. You find them written later. You find them written in the New Testament, spoken by the same individual. Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 23 says, Take heed to yourselves. And this is to the children, the second generation that came out of Egypt, that saw their parents wander for 40 years in the wilderness. And Moses is renewing the covenant with this second generation. You would think, wow, they should really remember because they saw all this stuff and they saw their parents die in the wilderness. Now the covenant's being renewed with them. Take heed to yourselves, lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you. And you make for yourselves carved, uh, a carved image in the form of anything which the Lord your God has forbidden. He says, remember these things. The point I'm trying to make here, brethren, is a biblical faith is a historical faith. It's based on evidence that you can find, that you can see, and that you can burn into your mind, and it can strengthen your faith. Okay, what kind of evidence is there in the Scriptures? What kind of evidence do we find in the Scriptures? What kind of evidence do we find in history that tell us about God, the type of person that He is, the type of individual that He is, the things that He's said, and how He's dealt with the Israelite peoples? Go back to Exodus quickly in Exodus 19. Coming out of Egypt, coming before Sinai. Here's the beginning of the covenant. In verse 3 it says, Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, in other words, the entire uh, uh, nation of Israel, and tell the children of Israel, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians. I opened the sea. They walked in. I closed it, and they disappeared. You saw that. Remember, you saw what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings. I delivered you. I brought you out of Egypt. Now, therefore, if you will obey my voice, here's the condition, and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all the people of the earth, for the earth is mine. You'll be a special people, a special people, a chosen people. Notice Deuteronomy chapter 7. This, this theme repeats, and then we'll see in the New Testament how this expands later. But Deuteronomy chapter 7, this theme is there. Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 and 7. You are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. And then they're reminded, the Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number or because you were superior or because you were better than any other people. You were the least 
of peoples. And then they're told later, God is not giving the promised land to you just because you're special. He says, those people have corrupted themselves. Therefore, they're going to perish. I'm going to give the land to you, but I want you to be a light and an example to the world. You know, people today, especially academics, have problems with calling America special or Britain special. And yet God said, you are a special people. Again, not because you're any better than anybody else. I called you to work with you. You know, when America was settled by colonists in the 1600s, they viewed America as the promised land, the new Israel, the city on a hill that was to be a light to the world. They knew. They believed those things. In academic terms, it's termed the, uh, the uh, exceptionalism. Of America, They think they're better. They think they're, they're God's people. And the British thought that too. But when we look at some of the evidence, you understand why they thought those things. And again, they got carried away with it. They didn't understand the whole picture. They didn't understand the big picture. But people today make fun of this. America's not special. They're just as stupid and they're just as crazy as anybody else. Well, that throws away a heritage. That throws away something that I think God is going to take some people to task for. But let's notice something about this heritage. There, there, God talks about a chosen people. I had a book that I picked up in England written by a Catholic journalist. It was entitled The Chosen People. He said, you can't understand America. And you can't understand Great Britain unless you understand this concept of a chosen people. That God chose them to be a light to the world. Now, they weren't a light. They didn't do what they were supposed to do, and they're going to be punished for that. You know, we're here part of this chosen people. And we've been called out of all different backgrounds. But the New Testament talks about you are a chosen people. We'll read that in just a little bit. Because we've been called to be different. We've been called out of this world. God wants to use a people to be a light to the world. So when somebody puts this concept, oh, there are no chosen people. You know, everybody's okay. I'm okay. You're okay. We're all okay. We're all the same. No, we're not. God has called a people to work with a group of people. And he calls them a chosen people. And that's what you're part of today. In Exodus 14, it talks about Israel coming out of Egypt and coming across the, or through the Red Sea. I encourage you to read the chapter. <clears throat> but let's focus on one verse, chapter 14, verse 14. Let's start in verse 13, maybe. The Israelites were there on the edge of the Red Sea. They saw the the dust coming from Pharaoh's army, and it said, Moses, look, you're gonna, you brought us out here to kill us. Here comes Pharaoh. We're all going to die. We should have stayed back in Egypt. Moses, here's what they said in verse 13. He says, Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. Can you picture yourself there as a leader? You see the dust? <laughs> don't be afraid. <laughs> 
Moses said, stand still, you'll see the salvation of the Lord. means he's going to deliver you, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you will see again no more. Who is this guy (laughs) making statements like this? Verse 14, he says, the Lord will fight for you. The Lord is going to fight for you. And you should hold your peace. Don't get rattled. Just watch. And they watched. The sea parted. They walked down into it. And then the sea came back together. And the army of Pharaoh disappeared. They saw the salvation of the Lord. God was fighting for them. Let's look at another scripture in Deuteronomy chapter 31. Now Moses is repeating various things and rehearsing various things here with the second generation, Deuteronomy 31. But notice these phrases and terms that pop up again in the New Testament. And it shouldn't surprise us because God doesn't change. Deuteronomy 31, Moses is giving some advice to Joshua. He said, you're going to be taking over. Verse 6, be strong and of good courage. Do not fear nor be afraid of them. For the Lord your God, he is the one who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. That's a promise. That's how God operates. He calls you, begins to work in your life. He will not leave you nor forsake you. Moses called Joshua and said to him, In the sight of all Israel, be strong and of good courage, because you've got to go in and take over the land. Verse 8, The Lord, he is the one who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. Do not fear nor be dismayed. Now if we go to Joshua chapter 1, where Joshua actually does take over from Moses. About four different times down through the first chapter, Joshua is told, be strong and of good courage. But notice in verse 5, no man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. You're going to be invincible. God is going to go before you. He's going to fight your battles. No man shall be able to stand before you all your days of your life. As I was with Moses, I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. You can read the same thing in Hebrews 13, verse 5. See, God doesn't change. He said, I'm with you. I'm going to go before you. You can look quickly through the book of Joshua in chapter 3. They're commanded to cross the Jordan. It says, carry the ark out in front of you. And what's interesting is the water of the Jordan stops as the ark comes up to the edge of the water. Water stops. They walk across on dry ground. Then Joshua is told, you put a pile of stones over here and a pile of stones over here to mark where we crossed. And you read the story there. It says the people of the land feared. (laughs) Here come those Israelites. Their God actually stopped the flow of the river. And he's the same God that separated the waters of the Red Sea and then dropped them back together on Pharaoh. We better get out of here. This was a case of God fighting for his people, preparing a way. 
but it's recorded in the scriptures. In Jericho, excuse me, in Joshua chapter 6, the story of Jericho, the beginning of the conquering of the promised land. They're told that God will fight for you. God will fight for you. They're told your strategy, your battle strategy, is you go out for six days and just walk around the city. When do we get to fight? When are we going to take into them? You just go out and you walk around the city once on Monday, once on Tuesday, once on Wednesday. Yeah, but we want to get them. Keep walking. (laughs) Then on the seventh day, you get to walk seven times around. And then shout, is that all? Just do it. And they did it. And apparently it was an earthquake. The walls fell down. And then they were told, go get them. (laughs) They went in, conquered the city, and they burned it. And the historical evidence is there. It's called city number four, level number four of Jericho. That there's evidence that the walls crumbled. There appears to have been an earthquake. And there's a burn layer there, about two or three feet thick. The evidence is there. God said, this is what I'm going to do. These are my instructions. You go do it. And then Joshua wrote it in a book. And it's there. This is the God that we worship, who does what he says he's going to do. Now, if we don't teach this history, nobody knows it. If people make fun of it, then nobody believes it. But if you take the time to look into it, nail it down, find out what the evidence says, then you can believe it confidently. Let's go to chapter 10 quickly. This is where Joshua and the Israelites are told to fight a group of Amorite kings around Jerusalem. And they're basically told God is going to fight for them. It talks about the Lord, verse 11, cast down large hailstones from heaven. And there was more that died from the hailstones than the children of Israel killed with the sword. Down to verse 14. There's been no day like this. Actually, God stopped the sun from moving. And it says in verse 13, it says, Is this not written in the book of Jasher? In other words, there's other confirming evidence that this actually happened. Verse 14, There's been no day like that, before it or after it, that the Lord heeded the voice of man, for the Lord fought for Israel. God did this. That's what the Bible tells us. That's how God operates. But this is the God that we worship. You might say, well, this is all Old Testament stuff. What about more up-to-date things? In Genesis 49, Deuteronomy 33, actually Genesis 48 and 49, God told Jacob, he says, your son Joseph and his his two boys, one of the, the descendants of one of those boys is going to become a great nation. And the descendants of the other boy is going to become a company of nations. He said they're going to spread around the earth, become a colonizing people. They're going to be blessed because of the obedience of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Not because they're special, these kids and their descendants. But I made a promise to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Now those things happened. And when you look at the role of the weather, for example. 
and the rise of Britain, the rise of America, there's literally no way of getting around the fact that God intervened again and again and again to bring to pass the promises that he made. Yeah, we did an article a number of years ago, November, December 2004, entitled The Weather Factor. And the sources are there. And I'd encourage you to go to the website, look up Weather Factor, read the, the, the article. But it talks about how Britain rose as a power, a Protestant power. And it talks about the Spanish Armada. How King Philip of Spain says, we're going over there, teach them a lesson, we're going to bring them back into the Catholic fold. And God is going to bless this because we're doing it for him. So they set out, they got as far as the northwestern corner of Spain, and they had to put in the bay up there because of a big uh, a storm that came along. Half the sailors were sick. Then they launched out again. They got up into the channel. They had brass guns. The British had iron guns. They had faster ships. They lost about 30 ships there, but it wasn't until they got into another tussle and then tried to get away, going up the channel and try to go around the north coast of Scotland. And then a gale came and destroyed about 50 or 60 ships. And this armada of 130 ships, or about 40 or 50, made it back to Spain. And they came in, one rolled over as they came in. <laughs> Half the crews weren't alive. They couldn't sail the boats. But God intervened. I mean, it was there. They understood it at the time. That was in 1588, 100 years later. Again, protecting a Protestant Britain from domination by the Catholic Church. William of Orange came across. He was trying to land north of London. The winds blew him clear down to the southwest. But he was able to land down there, but the winds changed. He was able to come in, but those winds kept <laughs> the British ships away from the Catholic king. They landed, took over the country. And they realized God intervened. Now, if, if somebody's into mathematics, try and figure the, the probabilities of this. God intervened with the Armada. God intervened with the invasion of William of Orange. What about Dunkirk? When the British troops were pushed up against the, the English Channel, Hitler stopped the, the attack. Nobody knows why. Think, well, they may have, the Germans may have overstretched their their uh, supply lines, but he stopped. If it had gone another 20 miles, it had the whole British army. But he stopped. Then a storm came through, grounded the German airplanes, and the British were able to retreat, put up a defensive perimeter. And then for the next nine days, the channel was as calm as a mill pond. And every night... All kinds of boats with no guns got people back and forth, and they got over 300,000 British soldiers out of Dunkirk. They called it the miracle of Dunkirk. And just one after another of these things. You know, the story of America is pretty much the same thing. You know, American troops, farm boys, were fighting professional soldiers sent over here from England. A number of battles, just one after another. George Washington fortified an area called Dorchester Heights. It's a little hill on the south part of the bay in Boston. Whoever gets up on that hill with some cannons controls the bay. Washington got up there at night. 
the British saw them up there the next morning. They were going to launch an attack across the bay, and a storm blows in. <laughs> the British troops couldn't get across. By the next night, there was too many cannons up there, and the British left Boston. They said, we, we can't function here. <laughs> we'll get blown out of the water. So they left. Not too long after that, the British sent about 15,000 troops to Long Island. They fought a battle with Washington's troops, pushed them up against the water, and they said, we'll get them in the morning. That night, a fog came in. The wind shifted, kept the British boats away. Washington got all his troops across to New Jersey because the British couldn't see him. They call it the, the heavenly messenger when the fog came in. When Washington crossed the Delaware, there were actually a couple of different crossings there. When they were attacking Trenton, the snow was coming out of the, against their, from their backs and right into the face of the sentries. It was the day after Christmas. Sentries weren't really in shape to fight a battle. They were Germans celebrating December 25th. But the, the, the colonials walk in, pretty much take over. They lost two men in that battle from hypothermia, not from bullets. Shortly after that, Cornwallis went after Washington. They pinned him up against a stream around Trenton, New Jersey. And it was kind of like... We got them tomorrow. The roads were really muddy. That night, the ground froze. Washington left his fires burning. He was able to get his troops out over these frozen roads. By the time the British woke up the next morning and realized, hey, there's nobody by those fires. Sun came up, the ground thawed, and they couldn't move. <laughs> I mean, just one after another of these things. Now, people that have studied this and write about it, they realize God did something miraculous. In terms of probabilities, we talked about eight or ten things here. What's the probability of weather interfering again and again and again and again? Kind of like one in a million, maybe. It just doesn't make sense unless there is a God that actually does fight for the people that he said, look, I'm going to protect you. Brethren, these are some of the things, if you spend some time looking into these things, there is God. There's no other way to explain these things. The Bible says that only a fool says there is no God that doesn't know the facts. But we've got a generation or two growing up in this country that have never heard some of these things. And history professors that would try to teach these things risk getting fired for even mentioning these things. Because today, people don't want to talk about God or the Bible. Okay, what does this all mean to you? What does it mean to me? How can God become more real to you in a very personal way? In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, <clears throat> Verses 26, 27, 28. <clears throat> Paul makes a statement here. Beginning in verse 26, he says, For you see your calling, brethren, how not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. You might want to think back on your calling. 
Were you actually looking for God? Or did something hit you square in the face that got your attention? Think about it. Where would you be today if God had not intervened in your life? Now, many of you had challenges. I was talking to Mr. Partian just the other day, and he was talking about when he came to Ambassador College. He had certain options and opportunities, and he had to make decisions whether to follow God or to do something else that he was going to do. I think many of us have had similar experiences. We were going off in different directions, and all of a sudden, bang, God reaches in, gets your attention. But see, this is what the Bible says. Do you see your calling? Don't forget that calling. God actually reaches into people's minds and adjusts the dials. The blindness falls away and you begin to understand the truth. That's a miracle. If you don't believe that, try and convert somebody. (laughs) You know, your spouse, your friends, your former preacher. Try it. It doesn't work. See, unless God is involved... John 6, 44, let me just give you a couple of scriptures here. So it says, no one can come to me, Jesus said, unless the Father calls them, draws them, opens their mind to begin to understand the truth. John 8, 32 says, you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. Will you begin to know the truth and recognize it whenever you're called, when God is beginning to work with you? Again, some of you young people have grown up in a church. You know what the truth is. The time is going to come when you're going to have to make a decision. What do I do with this stuff? Do I believe it? Or do I let it go? You know, what we're running into today, numerous places around the country and around the world, we're running into people that say, you know, I grew up in the church. And then I... I drifted away. I did other things. Sometimes got into real trouble. But God very mercifully then, in a number of cases, is bringing them back, opening their minds. They begin to realize, you know, I threw away an opportunity. But in some cases, I'm really glad (laughs) that God is merciful and that I can come back. See, that's what a calling is all about. It's an understanding John 17, verses 14 through 17, talks about sanctify these people. Christ is praying to his Father the night before he's crucified. He says, sanctify them by your truth. Set them apart by your truth. They're going to be keeping the Sabbath, keeping the holy days, understanding the purpose of life. That will set you apart from the world. Acts 26, verse 18, talks about being sanctified by faith in Christ, following his teachings, following his example, that's going to set you apart because you're special. You're special. God says that. Notice in 1 Peter chapter 2. See, this theme runs through the scriptures. God's people are special. They're called for a special reason. And we can have faith in these things, these statements of Jesus Christ and statements that he inspired. 
First Peter chapter two, verse nine, it says, you are a chosen generation. He's talking to people called to be part of the church. You're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. See, God called the Israelites in ancient Egypt. He says, you're my special people. And they agreed. <laughs> We're discussing this in the OTS class the other day. That the Israelites have a tendency. Yeah, we'll do it. We want to be your special people. We want to be the special people. And then they turn around and go the other way. They told Joshua, we'll follow you wherever you go. Go. And then they turn around and go the other way. (laughs) We need to realize what our characteristics are, brethren. We're human. Because it always looks so neat over there on the other side of the fence. And you go over there and take a bite out of it and wasn't what I thought it was. And we can't understand why it wasn't. Because <laughs> it looks so good. You're a chosen generation, a holy nation, a special people. Verse 10. <clears throat> Who were once not a people. We were just doing our own thing. But now you're the people of God. Who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. God is calling us, brethren, to be part of his family. Let's look at one or two other scriptures. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. See, this theme runs through the scriptures. And I hope as we go through these things, this will strengthen your faith. It will help you grow in confidence because these are things that Jesus Christ said, Jesus Christ inspired, and that we can believe if God is real to us. We've been called to be part of the first fruits. Part of the first fruits that he's going to prepare and use to reign in the kingdom of God. That's what it's talking about. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world, being having predestined us to the adoption of sons. That's the purpose of human life. That's God's plan. So God has a plan. He has a purpose that he's working out. But notice in Philippians chapter 1, Verse 6. Again, hopefully this will make God real to us, that God has a plan. Jesus Christ is working out a plan that you have been called to be part of. And that's exciting. Verse 6, Philippians chapter 1, being confident of this very thing. You can put faith and trust in this, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Can we grasp that? That God has called you to work with you, to prepare you to reign with Jesus Christ in the coming kingdom of God, and some people are throwing that away? Well, that's kind of interesting, but I'd rather go to heaven. I like this idea of floating on a cloud. That's cool. Do we realize what's happening and what has happened to some? <clears throat> and the Bible talks a lot. I'm going to skip over this just very quickly. But when we talk about faith, the Bible talks about in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, we need to walk by faith. We need to walk in the footsteps of Jesus Christ. He said to do it that way, do it that way. <laughs> you know, Trust what he says. Walk by faith. 1 Corinthians 12, verses 1 to 12, talks about the gifts of the Spirit. 
It talks about faith being a gift of the Spirit. We can ask for these gifts. But just like I prayed and asked for knowledge and nothing happened (laughs) until I began doing some other things, seeking and knocking in addition to just asking. But we can ask. Galatians 2.20, we're to live by the faith of Christ. In other words, you live as he lived. You do what he did. You do those things. You live by the faith of Christ. Ephesians 4, verses 3 and 13 talks about maintaining the unity of the faith. The unity of the faith. You know, the teachings of Scripture is not all over the page about government. Well, you can do this and you can do that. It really doesn't matter at all. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible's not all over the page about the Sabbath. Well, if you like to do it, that's fine. If you don't, well, God loves you. It's not in the Scriptures. The Bible's not all over the page there. There is a unity of the faith. Ephesians 6, 16, it talks about putting on the shield of faith. Now, if our shield is made out of rubber, and we've got a big rock coming at it, it goes, and it hits us, well, that shield wasn't very good. But if it's made out of hard, firm material, made out of iron... Things are going to bounce off of it. You know, the American battleship, old Ironsides, got its name because it had had oak planks. And the cannonballs would hit it and bounce off. Because oak, you ever try and drive a nail through oak? Four or five inches worth of it? (laughs) You hit that nail and go, it's hard to do. You put on the shield of faith. If you know what the truth is, people can laugh, they can make fun, they can ridicule. It's not going to shake your faith if you know what the truth is. Paul mentions in 1 Timothy 5.8, he said he's not denied the faith through his life. I have not denied the faith. I have not turned away from it. I have not turned back on it. 2 Timothy 4.7, he says, I've kept the faith. I didn't compromise. I didn't change. And he says there that I know there's a reward laid up for me because I've not compromised. I've kept the faith. In Hebrews 13.8, Jesus said, I'm the same yesterday and today and forever. I don't change. If we remember that, when he told the Israelites back in Deuteronomy 31.8, I'm never going to leave you. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to fight your battles. And then he says here in Hebrews 13, 8, I'm the same yesterday and today and tomorrow. And you go to 13, verse 5, he says, I'm never going to leave you. Same one. The God who fought the battles of Israel says, I'm going to fight yours too. One or two other points here quickly. In Romans 8.28, it's a memory scripture. It says there that all things will work to the good for those who are called according to the purpose of God. All things will work to the good for those that are called according to the purpose of God. Sometimes we get impatient with God. Sometimes we doubt. 
But, you know, God says all things will work to the good. And sometimes we have to be patient and wait and see how things are going to work out. In uh, second or first Corinthians 13, 10, 13, first Corinthians 10, 13, where God says, I will make a way of escape for you. I'll make a way of escape. I'll make a way out for you. Sometimes we have to be patient and we have to trust God. You said <laughs> you would make a way and I'm waiting patiently for you to do that. Another scripture along this line is Second Chronicles 16, verse 9. Let's go back and read that one. King Asa was, had made some mistakes, and he was being kind of addressed by one of the prophets. We don't have time to go into the story, but there is a scripture there that's worth reviewing. Second Chronicles 16, 9. It says, for the eyes of the Lord run to and, thro, to and fro throughout the earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. So King Asa was being admonished, but he's being told, reminded. You know, God looks for ways to intervene. He looks for ways to show himself strong on your behalf. These are some of the promises that are there that we can trust. Final scripture in Mark chapter 10, verse 30. Mark chapter 10, verse 30. And this is mentioned three different times in the Gospels, in Matthew and Mark and Luke. But we'll read the scripture in Mark. And some people have been told, that, you know, you stay in the church, you're going to lose all your opportunities. You follow this religion uh, you know, you're going to miss out on life. But notice what Jesus said. Do we believe it? Do we trust him? Mark chapter 10 and verse 30. Right, let's start in verse 29. Jesus answered and said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or lands for my sake in the Gospels, who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time. Houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, lands, with persecution. There will be some challenges along the way. And in the age to come, eternal life. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Is that real to you? Now, I've talked to people that shaking their heads, yeah, it's real, I've seen it happen. And then I'm sure there are others of us, I'm waiting to see this happen. <laughs> but brethren, we've been talking about faith. Is God real to you? Is the Jesus Christ of the Scriptures real to you? Do you believe what God says when He says, I'm going to be with you? I'm never going to leave you. I'm going to fight your battles. Jesus said in Luke 18, verse 8, When the Son of Man returns, will he find faith on this earth? I think we'll be able to answer yes if we prove all things. If we prove all things, we nail down what the truth is. 
if we periodically review and remember the evidence that's available to us. But we've got to remember. We've got to teach it to a second, another generation coming along. The facts of history. The facts of Scripture. We can answer yes to that question if we walk by faith. We actually put it into practice. Put it to the test. You know, we can be motivated by Luke 18.8. Not discouraged. You know, we can read that and say, well, will he, will he find faith? Well, I don't know. What am I going to do? <laughs> or we can be motivated. Yes, he's going to find faith when he looks in this direction. Because I'm going to ask God for it. I'm going to prove all things and hold fast to those things that are right and true. I'm going to walk by faith. Brethren, let's do our part. Let's ask God for faith, but let's do our part so that when Christ returns, he can find faith when he comes to see you.